Roger. You can be seated. Good evening, everyone. Um, thanks, Jill. Send you with these. Thanks. Uh, if no, it's okay. I'm singing. All I want for Christmas is a new right leg. Um, great to see you. If uh, if you're here tonight with a child, we have some activities planned for them as we look at the scriptures. So if kids, you are uh, dismissed to go to uh, hear a Christmas story. And parents, you're welcome to walk out with them if you're new with us. They'll show you where they'll go and they'll be picked up when we're done. My name is um, Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here and had surgery on a torn tendon a couple of weeks ago. So I get to sit with you tonight. Um, it's my pleasure to take about the next uh, 30 minutes or so to uh, share with you a message from uh, the Scriptures. So if you uh, brought a Bible with you, you might get it out. We'll be in the book of Exodus. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the chairs in front of you. And there's a table of contents there. You can look it up. Great to be celebrating uh, with you. Thank you for spending the evening with us. Many times at Christmas, we go back in the Bible to look at the story of Jesus' birth. But tonight, we want to go a little bit further back than that, actually quite a bit further. Back all the way to the second book in the Bible, a book called Exodus. And maybe we could set it up this way. Trapped, abused, stuck, taken advantage of, oppressed, used, and controlled. That's what it would have felt like to be a Jew in the story we're going to look at tonight. The second book in the Bible, the book of Exodus, tells us that uh, the Jews, God's people, were oppressed by Pharaoh and made to be their slaves. Eight, ten, twelve-hour days were the norm. They were used mainly as construction workers, uh, expanding the vast wealth of the superpower of the day, the nation of Egypt. The labor was excruciatingly hard, the oppression was vast, and the rights were nil. Maybe you can identify. Some of us here tonight are slaves to a bottle. What started as a way to have fun and to get over a hard day, has now, years later, ended up controlling you. Others are slaves to the opinions of people. What we think about other people as they think about us has become the controlling principle in our lives. If other people are not okay with us, then we're not okay. Some of us here tonight are slaves to pornography, We've watched people commit sex acts as we click on the computer so many times that we can't see another human being of the opposite sex without thinking that way about them. You are its slave. It controls you. Still others here tonight are dominated by bitterness. What somebody did to you long ago has ended up soiling your attitude towards all of life. They hurt you, and so you're making sure no one hurts you like that again. 
But when we do that, then we invariably hurt ourselves. We become slaves of bitterness. And that bitterness controls us. We may not be slaves in Egypt, but none of us are strangers to what it's like to be oppressed. In the second chapter of Exodus, we find the Israelites crying out to God. And in one of these prayers, he finally responds. He says this in verse 23. During those days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out to God for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Uh, friends, the sweetest news you could ever receive is that God hears your groaning. God knows and God cares. And so hear that tonight. Regardless of if you are here with us every week or like a little kid came up to me <laughs> at the start of the service and said, the last time I was here was Easter. I thought you would have healed from this by then. <laughs> God, God hears, God cares, God knows. You may be familiar with what happens next in the story. Uh, a couple of years ago, the blockbuster film Exodus, Gods and Kings attempted to portray it for the big screen. Maybe you saw it. God sent two brothers named Moses and Aaron to tell the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh said no, and as the story goes, a, a cosmic battle between the two ensued. And the battle was between the false gods of Egypt and the one true God of Israel. And over the next coming days, ten plagues ensued. And the story seems rather cruel unless you get that as the backdrop. You see, the king, Pharaoh, had declared himself to be a god, the god over many gods in Egypt. And every one of these plagues was designed to show that there's really only one god, that all the other gods the people were worshiping weren't true. False gods are impotent to help with anything. But if, for time's sake, we jump the first nine plagues and get to the last, then the main scripture I would love us to consider tonight is Exodus chapter 12. Exodus 12 verse 1, it says this. The Lord said to Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. In other words, everything's going to start fresh. This is a new beginning. Tell all the congregation of Israel, that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Verse 4, and if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his closest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th month of this, 
until the 14th day of this month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they shall eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. Gross. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Everything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened and sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste, for it's the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout all generations as a statue forever, for you shall keep it as a feast. Now, this is some weird stuff, is it not? Kill a lamb, smear its blood around your door, eat a special meal, and get dressed up like you got to run. It's all rather odd. But this Passover, as it's called, becomes the central story for the rest of the Bible. It becomes the governing principle by which God rescues people out of slavery. And the same is true for us today. Probably the strangest thing in the story is the notion that an animal, a lamb, could serve as a substitute. That a lamb could die so that a whole household could be blessed. And that the blood over the doorpost would signify the purity of the people within the house. And as God then came in judgment, killing the firstborn across all the land of Egypt, he'd skip the houses where a lamb had been killed. Now, again, it, it helps to know that Pharaoh had said, I am the chief God of all the gods. And his son was therefore what? The, the son of God. And so God in bringing judgment is saying, there's only one true God. But why was all this necessary? Well, it's because God's a just God. It's not popular today to talk about the justice of God, but it's important. Let me explain. People who suffer significant hardships at the hands of others very often end up like those who caused the suffering. Maybe you had a cruel, mean, arrogant parent. And as you think back to Christmas Eves and Christmases as a child, like every other day, you had to walk around on eggshells because you just weren't sure what would cause dad to blow up this time. And at times he would get angry 
and yell, throw things. On those very rare occasions, he would even hit. And so you grew up gritting your teeth, determined. I'm never going to be like Dad. But now you've got grown kids of your own. Typically what happens is dads are like their dads. And so you found yourself saying and doing things you never imagined. That's sort of like what had happened to the Israelites. They had been beaten down by the oppression of others. And yet they themselves took on that same stance towards each other and towards those who had oppressed them. You see, the evil we face ends up just putting the spotlight on the evil that was already inside of us. And so none of us are without guilt. And to some degree, the Scriptures tell us that the Egyptians had taken on the gods of Egypt, counting on their gods to do for them what the Egyptians thought their gods should do for them. They had gotten used to Egypt in their hardship, in their disappointment, in their distress in life. They had turned their back on God. I wonder if that's your story. Maybe growing up you believed in God, but life as an adult hasn't turned out the way you thought it would. So you've turned your back on that God of your childhood. Maybe your response to the difficulties of life has ended up causing you to be enslaved by something. That certainly was my story. And honestly, the Bible tells us if we look closely enough, that's all of our stories. So what the book of Exodus tells us and what our own life experience has proven to be true is that none of us are right with God, that all of us have gone our own way, certainly in different capacities and to different degrees and for different reasons, but we've all found ourselves slaves of something. So how does a just, holy God deal with a people who've rejected him? Well, he can't simply ignore our failures because the way God has so hardwired the world is that the world is a just place. Sure, it might not look like it some days, but God is a just God and God governs a world in which there will be justice. That's the way he's made things. God is a just God. But God's not just holy and he's not only just. He's also loving and merciful and kind and gracious. And so he told the Israelites, yes, this is rather strange and odd, but you kill this lamb, one for every house, and because you've believed me, then I will look on that death of that lamb as though it were your death. And I'll provide a substitute for you. I'll cleanse you and I'll rescue you. Friends, that's how a just and loving God deals with people. He says, if you believe me, if you trust me, 
then I'll look on the death of another in your place. Now I realize, and I've said it multiple times, but just to say it again, this is an odd story. Probably none of you who will have a turkey tomorrow will kill it tonight. We go to the store for stuff like that. And so this story seems so archaic and far from our experience, and in many ways it is. And yet all of us, too, need a substitute. But the Jews, the believing Jews, as they took a brush and a cup of this lamb's blood, and they walked outside their homes and they brushed up one side, and across the top, and down the other side, here's what they would have been thinking. They would have been thinking, this is weird. But I'm not a sinless person. And God is a holy God. And I don't deserve to be part of God's people. But he's a loving God. So God, would you pass over this house? Would you in your mercy spare us? And then they went to bed. We could do the same thing. God, I've responded to the evil of others with evil of my own. God, I've taken good things that you've given me to enjoy and made them the object of my worship. God, I've been embittered and angry and unforgiving. Would you spare me? You see, God is a completely holy and just God. And as those Jews took that lamb's blood and smeared it, they were reminded, this ought to be me. I'd encourage you to read through the rest of the story of Exodus to uncover what happens. It's a tremendous story. But let me just summarize the bottom line. Miraculously, God intervened. God did, in fact, come, and he did spare every house where there was a substitute. And every other house woke up to agony. And so Pharaoh said, get out. Go. You're free. The Egyptians left. Miraculously, God set his people free from Egyptian oppression and delivered them out of freedom. And so literally every year since that day, people have gathered together to remember the the Passover, as it was called. Well, good for them, right? What in the world does this have to do with Christmas? Everything. You see, the, the deliverance out of Egypt sets the pattern for how God rescues all people who will believe in him. This is the prototype. This is the way God works. To put it another way, Moses' work 
setting the people up for their physical rescue out of Egypt was always about pointing forward to Jesus' work of setting all people who will come to him free, not merely from physical oppression in a land, but, but free from eternal oppression to sin. Isn't that beautiful? So let me tell you briefly what I mean. Fast, fast forward about 1,500 years. So every year for 1,500 years, the Jews would get together and they'd have a meal and they'd remember this deliverance out of Egypt. But they'd yearn for something even more. And so here's Jesus. So we've moved from Egypt now to what's modern-day Israel. Jesus has spent a couple of years wandering around city to city, preaching about God's kingdom, healing people, training people to continue his work after he left. And he strategically enters Jerusalem at the exact moment when all the other Jews are traveling to Jerusalem to remember the Passover. Timing is uncanny. And listen closely to uh, these words, Matthew 26. It says this, Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city and a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. The the disciples, Jesus' closest friends, would have spent every year of their life doing this. It was something they were very accustomed to. Maybe you have Christmas traditions. Every year you make cookies, or you set out the milk for Santa, or you have a certain kind of meal on Christmas Eve. The disciples had the Passover, this meal that was looking back to their rescue out of Egypt. They would have been expecting the meal like they'd had every year. Kill the lamb, remember what God did, eat the meal, sing and celebrate, and ask God to intervene yet again. But with a few simple sentences we're about to read, Jesus takes this 15-year 1,500-year-old tradition and infuses it with the meaning it was always pointed forward to. Verse 26 says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, Take, eat. That part they expected. But then he said something so odd. He said, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. He said, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. If you're new to this story and it seems confusing, then know it was just as confusing to these guys who heard it for the first time. 
Because as Jesus took this bread, he broke it. And as he held out the cup, and he said, this is the drink, drink it. He took that bread and cup that they were so familiar with, but he gave it richer, fuller, the ultimate meaning. He used the bread and the cup as metaphors for his body and his blood. Now, the big question, of course, is is why? Why would Jesus have done this? Well, it's because in less than 48 hours from when he said that, Jesus' arms would be stretched out, nailed to a cross, and he would slowly die. It's because within 48 hours, Jesus would be laid on a cold slab of stone in a borrowed tomb. It's because Jesus was repeating and fulfilling the pattern set in the Exodus. Jesus was becoming, Jesus was announcing himself to be the Lamb. Friends, the message of Christmas is not eggnog. All of you who drink that, you're disgusting. Amen. The message isn't eggnog. It's, it's not time with family. It's not some cool new toys. But the message also isn't Joseph and Mary and sweet little baby Jesus in a manger. The message isn't three wise men coming sentimental with their cute little gifts. It's not the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and pinch his little cheeks. That's not what Christmas is about. The message of Christmas is this. God the Son became a baby so that the baby could grow up to be a man, so that the man could live a perfect life of obedience before his father so that the man who lived the perfect life of obedience could die a horrendous, sacrificial, substitutionary death for you and for me so that the lamb slayed, slain would rise three days later in victory demonstrating that the Father accepted the sacrifice so that all forever who would come to Him with belief can be saved. That's Christmas. People who are bound not merely as physical slaves in Egypt, but as spiritual slaves, slaves to alcohol and bitterness and people-pleasing, and every other kind of sin imaginable. If we come to God with belief, then God saves. Now, maybe that feels like a stretch to you. Well, if so, this verse a little further into the Bible will make it really clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So do you realize what that means? No longer must you remain a victim of the evil done to you. 
And no longer must you remain a victim of your own evil. No longer must you remain enslaved to people and things that promise you deliverance but only bring death and destruction. Christians, brothers and sisters, the lamb has already been slain in your place and his blood has already purified you. You're free. And non-Christians, people who got drug here with a friend or family. Jesus' death and life can be counted as yours. All that's required of you is that you come to recognize that you need that substitute and that nothing you could do could earn a place of right standing before God. And if you simply believe the message of the Scriptures, and put your trust in him, then he'll save you. That substitute will be counted as yours forever. God has shown his love, and what he asks in return is simply faith and repentance. That's the message of Christmas. Ever since that meal that Jesus had with his followers, followers of God, Christians, have done something similar to what the Jews did long before that. So literally for around 3,500 years, all over the world, people have taken bread and taken a cup, and they've remembered with these symbols that God is a God of love and justice, and God has intervened for his people. Around the room, there are uh, four stations with, I'll point to this one here, for example, bread and cup. And if you have trusted Christ, if you are a Christian, you're a member of a church, then we would invite you in just a moment to stand and go to one of these stations here or in the back. Come yourself, come with a family member, come with a friend, and take that bread and cup. And go back to your seat. And would you just on your own, as the band sings for us, pray and remember that your sin came with a price, that there was a substitute. That substitute wasn't an animal. A substitute was Jesus Christ, God himself. And he willingly gave his life for you so that you could have life. And then let's join in song together. For this is something not to mourn, but to praise and to celebrate. Amen? Would you stand with us and let's pray? And then you can go on your own. Father, we thank you that the message of Christmas is not merely a sentimental story that makes us feel good. No, it's the truth that God, you intervened, that evil doesn't get the last word, 
that you do. I pray for any here tonight who have never come to believe in you, that, God, you would enable them now and that they would return to faith and repentance and that you would save. And for others, Lord, who have already trusted in you, we praise you together. We thank you that our sin no longer defines us. That we are not slaves to sin. We are slaves of Christ. And as we come now to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the fulfillment of the Passover, we praise you that that baby boy grew into a man who fully obeyed and freely gave himself. And he reigns today as our king. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.